This is CliffCentral.com. Good morning. Welcome to the Opinion Booth with myself, Sonia Booth. And today's title is Black Death. The plague outbreak in Madagascar has killed 102 and over 1,200 are infected. Should we start prepping for doomsday? My guest today is an expert, somebody who's very knowledgeable about the topic, Professor John Freen, Associate Professor, Parasitology Reference Laboratory Center for Emerging Zoonotic and Parasitic Diseases. I know it's a mouthful. He's also Deputy Director at the National Institute for Communicable Diseases, NICD, a division of the National Health Laboratory Service. Prof, welcome to Opinion Booth. Thank you. Nice to be here. Now, if you watch TV shows such as Doomsday Preppers and movies such as World War Z or Z for Americans, you will be concerned and perhaps a little paranoid about the latest plague in Madagascar. In case you skipped your geography lessons, Madagascar lies southeast of Africa and it is very close to South Africa, a mere three hours flight from Joburg. Professor, should we worry about Black Death World War Z or is that just a bit too far-fetched? Uh, I think there's a bit of hype there. Uh, we have to keep in mind that plague is not unknown in Madagascar. They expect to see between 200 and 600 cases every year. What's a bit unusual is the size of this uh, outbreak and the nature of it. It's a bit uh, unusual. In terms of danger to South Africa, well, we have to keep in mind that there are several African countries where plague is endemic. And in fact, South Africa was one of those countries until a few decades ago. So plague is not unknown to us. In terms of importation of cases, well, that is a concern and something that we need to keep in mind. The plague, I mean, it, it, as I said, it's, it's, it's killed um, 100 people and more than 1,000 are infected. Is that the right word to use when you say infected? It, it is. Well, that total includes suspected as well as proven cases. And so, does that include all the other people that have been in contact with the person that was exposed to it? No, it doesn't. Um, there would be many contacts of those suspected cases, and those are being followed up. And they may then become suspected ones if they're uh, if they're ill, and um, so that number is likely to increase before it decreases. This disease, which has contributed um, to the deaths of more than fifty million people, that is a quarter of the world's population in Europe during the Middle Ages. It has spread from rural areas into urban areas, which are not usually affected. Should we really start prepping for doomsday? I mean, I know you've alluded to the fact that it's this, there's a bit too much of a hype there. But, I mean, when you're looking at the numbers, it's it's a cause for concern. You know, the very name plague um, causes fear in people, especially when you use terms like black death and so on. Um, but plague is really a part of the ecosystem in, in many places in, in the world. Uh, it's just, it's now, over the last few decades, or even longer, has gone below people's consciousness. And so when we hear about outbreaks, it does excite this particular fear. But um, 
We uh, know that it's uh, prevalent in many African countries. In fact, Africa provides most of the world's um, plague cases, uh, but it's not confined to Africa. And um, in other parts of the world, South America, even North America, the United States, has their share of plague. Very small numbers, but um, it exists there as well. And we might, one of these days, see a resurgence uh, in our own country. That's the nature of plague, that it goes away for years, decades, even centuries, and then pops up. And that's because of the um, what we call zoonotic properties of plague. It's a disease of animals, and humans are really only incidentally infected. So this, the situation in Madagascar is somewhat unique um, in that they see those fairly substantial numbers of cases every year. Um, and the um, current outbreak really arises from that high endemicity in Madagascar. You wrote an article titled Understanding Plague in the 21st Century. Consider us your fifth grade class. What do you do at NICD? I mean, I bet your lab looks like NASA spaceship. Well, NICD covers a range of um, disciplines. Uh, one of those is um, that it has a number of high security laboratories where we deal with, you know, some of the really scary diseases like Ebola, uh, Congo, Crimea, and other hem- viral hemorrhagic fevers. Um, on the viral side and then we have a high security laboratory which also deals with uh, bacterial diseases which require high security so plague, uh, anthrax and uh, a couple of others so we are uh, equipped we have um, the necessary knowledge and we have the historical background of dealing with these diseases over many years to be able to um, diagnose, uh, advise, and and handle them. So NICD really is, um, in terms of this collection of diseases, uh, really very well resourced uh, for the country. I mean, you, you obviously here to educate, inform, enlighten, and hopefully put our mind at ease. But for me, the scary thing is that a lot of people are not aware of this outbreak. I mean, I don't know if it's ignorance or if it's uh, due to the fact that a lot of people are not clued up about our current affairs, which, which is a big worry. Personally, I came across this on Twitter. At Twani underscore three underscore, that's her Twitter handle, posted this on 15 October. Quote, there's a plague in Madagascar in the Seychelles that, it, that is likely to spread to Mauritius and Reunion, and I feel like folks aren't worried. That's her tweet. She goes on to say, Mauritius isn't that far away, a young four hours away, and some infected person can cause havoc in this here Joburg. How would you respond to her? I'd say that's largely true, because one form of plague where it affects the lungs that's called pneumonic plague, is highly infectious. When infected people cough, they release a spray of um, sputum, and that would include bacteria, which then can be inhaled by other people and infect them. So from that point of view, it's highly transmissible within a certain radius. Basically, the distance your cough droplets can 
can travel. And that's really the reason why it has spread so quickly and so widely in Madagascar, because most of the plague cases have been of that pneumonic form. And therefore, if a patient or a person who's infected and coughing travels, they take the infection with them and can infect others on the plane, for example, or when they arrive. So that that is a concern, and that's something that we are making, or we have made preparations for in South Africa. But it's not the only disease like that that we're concerned about. We've had um, the same sort of preparations put in place for other respiratory infections. You may have heard of um, avian influenza. Yes. You may have heard of um, SARS, the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, Um, MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Those are all diseases which are spread in a similar way. And all ones that we have put, when I say we, the NICD and the government, the uh, health departments, Port Health, Department of Health, have put in place um, measures to prepare us for that eventuality. I mean, Seychelles reported uh, 12 cases of affected people. Air Seychelles flights to and from Madagascar were stopped from 8 October to reduce likelihood of further importation of cases from Madagascar. The World Health Organization does not recommend restrictions on travel and trade based on the currently available information. That's what they said. What does it take for WHO to recommend such restrictions? Like how bad does it have to be or how bad does it need to get before they, you know, um, put up uh, restrictions for travel and trade? So they'll do that when there's a substantial risk of the disease spreading beyond the borders. At the moment, they've decided that the risk is probably low. Seychelles is highly dependent on the tourist trade, and any adverse publicity in the form of possible plague outbreaks would really have a major impact on their economy. So that's probably the reason why they took that step of stopping all flights. The, The other reason, of course, is they probably have more contact than many other countries with Madagascar. There's almost certainly quite a lot of air traffic between those two countries. So they probably are at higher risk. But the suspected plague cases in the Seychelles that arrived there um, actually haven't been proven. So they're still regarded as probable rather than proven plague cases. Although clinically and on some of the preliminary laboratory tests uh, indicated plague um, further testing at a reference laboratory in France uh, was unable to demonstrate the presence of the organism so they're still regarded as suspected but that's you know sufficient to be worried and to take precautions and they've decided on those more drastic uh, precautions but it's not those are not recommended by the WHO at this stage so, I mean, if they're still awaiting results from, from France, are those people suspected to be infected still interacting with everybody else or sh- do they need to be under quarantine, for example? Well, on the basis of a suspected case, they would have treated them and given their contacts prophylaxis. So the situation's, from that point of view, under control uh, in terms of preventing spread further. It's just that the the ultimate 
um, confirmation has not been made. And I mean, it's not only Seychelles that we should worry about as South Africans. I mean, we have Reunion Islands. We have, um, uh, what do you call it? We, Mauritius as well, which, which can't be overlooked. I mean, Mauritius is only four hours, uh, flight from, from Johannesburg. Those, those, uh, islands, do you, do you think there's a possibility of the spreading? I think they're in the same position as, as the Seychelles. Um, uh, but as far as I know, there's been no evidence of a spread to, to, um, to those countries, uh, no infected travellers have have been identified there, to to the best of my knowledge. So you you mentioned that South Africa is prepared and ready. Should there be an outbreak? I mean, regarding preventative measures, for example, are people people being screened at the airport and other ports of entry uh, when 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 they land from these affected islands? Is that currently happening? That is currently happening, and it's uh, part of the. Um, Routine um, procedures nowadays that everybody uh, gets a temperature reading, and if they are feverish, they are um, taken to the or asked to go to the um, examination room just to make sure that they're all right or not all right, as it were, and for further decisions to be made about what what to do, whether to test them, admit them. Um, depending on what uh, the possibility is. There's um, a lady on Twitter who responded to the initial post. Um, her name, I am Semtastic. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting name. But anyway, she tweeted, my dad was there recently, Madagascar, that is. So my question to you was that should people in close contact with the dad be monitored, screened, or tested? We're recommending that there is very little risk for the average traveler, either tourist or business person, to Madagascar. <clears throat> uh, we can't say there's no risk. It depends what people are doing. If, for example, they're going to possibly camp out in rural areas in the affected uh, countryside, um, they possibly could come into contact. If they're going into uh, crowded areas in the affected districts in Madagascar, they may be, may be exposed. If they're visiting, for example, friends and relatives who may have had a family member sick or so on, they would be at high risk. But that's really not the average tourist. The average tourist is going to um, a holiday resort or a lodge, um, probably well away from these affected areas. Um, the businessman is going to be staying in, in good hotels, and therefore they're not going to have a realistic chance of uh, contact with a, a patient. Uh, the other risky area is healthcare workers. So people going to to tend to ill patients may well be at higher risk. But, I mean, you, you talk about people who are in holiday resorts um, almost as being safe. Um, it, that, that, that's what you alluded to, right? That's yes. what you yes. insinuated. Um, but I, I came across an article, um, uh, UK, warning their residents not to even go to, uh, to uh, holiday resorts. Australia issued the same warning. So are they being melodramatic, you think? I think they want to try and make sure that no one is exposed. Um, so they they are being overcautious, I think. Um that's their, that's their option, obviously. 
but I think it's I think it is um, being excessively uh, cautious. What is bubonic, septicemic, and pneumonic plague? So, plague is caused by a bacterial organism that has its natural host in in rodents mainly. A few other animals can be affected, but mainly rodents, and it's transmitted between those rodents by fleas because fleas are a normal part of their ecosystem. When a flea bites, it transmits the organism and it establishes an infection at the site of the bite and then the organism travels to the local lymph nodes and there it sets up an inflammatory response and we get enlarged, painful lymph nodes called buboes. So that form of plague is called bubonic plague. That's what the name refers to. In some cases, if that's not treated, the infection can spread outside of the lymph nodes and get into the bloodstream. And that's what we call septicemic plague. So it's a bloodstream infection. From the bloodstream infection, it can then spread into the lungs and cause infection in the lungs or pneumonia. And that is pneumonic plague. So out of those three, bubonic plague is the least severe, but it can progress to the more serious forms of the disease. And that is why we want to diagnose and treat the infection as soon as, as, soon as we can. What are the symptoms and how can I prevent infection? Well, let's deal with symptoms first. So there may be um, a little boil or sore at the site of the tick bite and enlarged lymph nodes together with fever, feeling generally ill. Um, that would really be... And the, the, the lymph nodes get really painful and they swell up. They get filled with pus. Sometimes they can burst onto the skin and release the pus. Those would be the signs and symptoms of bubonic plague. Septicemic plague... Basically, blood infection by the organism, and that can progress if it's not treated to cause um, really serious uh, disease in the form of multi organ failure, renal failure, liver failure, and um, pe- can, people can start bleeding. Uh, you may have seen those horrible pictures of gangrenous extremities. Yes. That's really the end result of severe septicemic plague and it's similar to what we can see with any gram-negative bacterial infection that you don't have to go to Madagascar to get you can get it here anywhere in the world so it's a similar process to that and um, when it reaches the lungs we get a really severe destructive process with inflammation and pus formation in the lungs which um, will very rapidly kill the patient if it's not promptly diagnosed and treated. So that's really the spectrum of, of disease. In terms of prevention, the first step is, if you're exposed, prevent flea bites. So preferably don't go into those areas where you might be exposed to flea bites, which is why our advice is not to go camping in affected areas because you may well come into contact with local wild rodents and their fleas. 
to avoid crowded areas in the cities in Madagascar because you might come into contact with um, people who are people who are ill, coughing, and you might be exposed to air. You're more likely to be exposed to airborne infection in that in that setting. And for people who may be exposed, we can give them antibiotics prophylactically. So before they're ill, we can give them an antibiotic which may which will kill any organisms which they may have been exposed to before they even start getting the symptoms. The, the person that you're prescribing the antibiotics, is that person then allowed to go home and continue with their lives and go to work? I mean, there's no risk of exposure to those uh, closest uh, or around them? If they're perfectly well, yes. It really depends on the degree of risk we think a patient uh, um, pr- produces, provides. If they're ill but not critically ill they may be asked to stay in isolation for a while just to see that the um, disease doesn't progress or if it does that other steps can be taken but if they if they're perfectly well they pose no risk to to anyone else on antibiotic prophylaxis so it's 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 believed that you can become contaminated in the morning and be dead by night that's probably uh, unrealistically short. Uh, the incubation period is usually between four to about ten days, depending on the type of transmission that's occurred. So a pneumonic plague where you've inhaled droplets, that would have the shortest incubation period. And the shortest is probably two days, maybe a bit less in some cases. So you're not going to get infected in the morning and die in the afternoon in in general. Mm, okay, that's a relief because, I mean, this statement was made by a Dr. Eric Betherat, um, who is a WHO epidemiologist. So um, um, you put my mind at ease because, I mean, it's a scary statement when you hear something like that. I think what he may have been saying is you can be ill in the morning and dead by the afternoon. I that's, see. That's, that's how, absolutely sure. That's how quick, that's it, how quick it, it can be. But that's once you are ill. There's a period between getting the infection and becoming ill. That's what we call the incubation period. And the shortest is probably a day or two for that. Sure, but that's scary enough as it is. There's a a, a South African basketball player uh, who contracted the plague in Madagascar. What is the update on his health? So he was um, treated in Madagascar. He was uh, declared healthy and allowed to travel. Arrived in South Africa with no problem. We did contact him, interview him, and he's fine. So he, at no stage did he pose any risk to either passengers or uh, people um, on arrival in, in South Africa. But I think it's, it um, is a warning that... Um, <clears throat> sorry. That's okay. I, th- I think it was a useful case to know about because it could have really um, been very different. If he had got on a plane ill and coughing, he might have exposed other people. And on arrival, he might have exposed people here. So a person like that uh, could have been the source of an outbreak in, in our country. Fortunately, it, it didn't happen uh, that way. And he was diagnosed, treated, cured before he was allowed to travel back to South Africa. And none of his teammates or coaches would 
be or were at risk of exposure? Well, they may have been at risk of exposure, but they um, did not become ill. They weren't infected, and they also returned safely. One of the other team's coaches actually got ill and died of plague in Madagascar. So obviously there was some risk of exposure, um, and fortunately um, didn't spread beyond the that one particular person in the um, in that basketball event. Sure. Well, that's scary. It's like watching a movie, actually. It's like re- reliving a, a scene of, uh, of, a, of a movie. Disease thrives where there's poor sanitary conditions and health services. Sanitation and water, we can say, are in the same WhatsApp group. You cannot talk about sanitation and not talk about water. Water rationing is now in place in the Cape to prevent level five restrictions. Moreover, the South African National Defense Force is said to be ready to step in to protect water sources. People are said to line up to collect water under the watchful eye of soldiers. This has been termed water geddon. This was in the news this morning. And when I first read this news feed, at first I thought fake news because it's not possible that the SANDF is going to protect water sources because, I mean, the Cape is just a two hours flight away. So, I mean, when you look at a name like Water Geddon, it's, it's, it sounds, it sounds scary. So concerning indeed, considering uh, warnings that the next war will be fought over water. One article referred to water as the petroleum of the next century. In your opinion, which of the following is more than likely in our lifetime? The possibility of World War Three, courtesy of Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, or us killing each other due to a scarcity of water? Well, I think um, water shortage is a growing concern. You know, South Africa is one of the drier countries in the world. Um, but I honestly don't think we've reached the stage of going to war uh, over water. Um, but I think there may well be in the future um, even worse shortages. I think we're going to have to really change our mindset about how we use water and um, there's still a lot that we can do to uh, conserve water. We need to educate people. Um, they need to, as has happened in Cape Town, there needs to be a population um, initiative to put in measures to, to conserve our, our water supply. And we need to stop wasting water um, at many different levels, personal, at um, household level, at um, town, city level, and and nationally. We need to become much more focused on realizing real, realizing that water is such a precious commodity, we, we can't waste it. But it really doesn't impact on some diseases. Um, for example what we're talking about, plague, is not really a waterborne disease. It's not water-associated in, in any sense. But, I mean, it thrives. 
disease thrives, where there's poor sanitation, right? I mean, when you look at uh, townships and informal uh, settlements which are infested with threats, and this plague is mainly found in rodents. So surely you cannot separate the two. Okay, rodents are associated with poor living conditions. Yes. Um, rodents also also need um, food and shelter and water. And if our living conditions provide that, we are going to have rodents. And it really makes no difference whether you kill, uh, trap or poison them. You may create a temporary uh, re- reduction in numbers but that just represents a vacuum which is then filled by rodents which uh, fill that vacuum. And that's why our health authorities, the environmental health people, are really um, not able to control the rodent situation in some of our, let's say, poorer areas, poor, um, poorly serviced uh, uh, poor living conditions because our population is actually providing the necessary requirements for rodents. These areas are generally littered with garbage. Yes. For whatever reason, whether it's poor collection of garbage or uh, people not um, being able to dispose of it other than dumping it down the road. But until we get communities to uh, understand and participate in in cleanups, they are going to provide food and shelter for rodents, and the problem will never ever go away. And the the big danger in terms of plague is if an infected rodent gets into that sort of situation, we can have a, an outbreak in the rodents, which can then jump to jump to humans. And that's, I don't know if you remember, last year we found an infected rat in um, Dipkloof area. There was a lot of publicity about it, a plague-infected rat. There was a lot of publicity and a lot of warning lights went on. Um, but fortunately, there was no evidence further of further spread. But it does tell us that we have the potential for um urban plague in in South Africa and we need to um, be aware of that and try and um, educate people about their lifestyle and um, and what they need to do at a, at a personal or household level to um, prevent any major outbreak of disease because plague is only one of many rodent associated diseases and probably near the bottom of our list of concerns um, but it, it it is there There has been reports of taxi malaria which I never even knew what, what was what, what it was I mean this um, in being in uh, Pretoria and the Kempton Park areas this form of disease is called Odyssean malaria is that how you said Odyssean malaria also known as airport suitcase minibus or taxi rank malaria who comes up with such names well this has been recognized for quite a long time that mosquitoes can travel out of 
malaria transmission areas, carrying the disease with them, and infect people in non-transmission areas and give them malaria. And as you can see from the number of terms, that can happen in various ways, theoretically. So airport malaria was recognized in Europe uh, a number of decades ago when people who hadn't traveled got ill and many of them were in proximity to major international airports and really the only logical explanation was that mosquitoes had come by airplane escaped when the plane landed and infected people and similarly other modes of transport can carry mosquitoes um, so we have this whole group of of terms referring to the different ways mosquitoes can be transported and so we wanted to produce one unifying uh, name for this group which is why we came up with the term Odyssean malaria because Odysseus was the the Greek hero who went after the Trojan Wars went on uh, many years of travel around the Mediterranean trying to get home. It had very many adventures. So the analogy is this mosquito in being accidentally transported out of her normal habitat also goes through various adventures on her way to, for example, Kempton Park uh, to bite someone. So that's the origin of the name Odyssean malaria. But it's really a simple concept. A mosquito transported by accident and transmits malaria out of the normal transmission area. Superbugs claim the lives of around 700,000 people a year and antibiotics don't seem to keep up with the development of deadly new strains of diseases. Can we keep up with the pace and can you please explain the term antibiotic apocalypse? Well, this is really a major international concern. We're reaching the stage where certain infections are untreatable because of antibiotic resistance. And that's largely the result of our careless use of antibiotics, both in the human population and on the animal population, because in the animal population, our food animals, because antibiotics are extensively used in animal rearing to promote growth. And unless we get this situation under control, we're going to go back to the stage when even minor infections can kill people because we simply can't treat them. And we need to try and um, educate our, particularly our healthcare givers, into better use of of antibiotics. Antibiotics are a wonderful tool, and they've saved millions and millions of lives. But unless we improve our use of them, uh, we're going to run out of options because there are relatively few new antibiotics in the pipeline, and we're probably going to lose the use of many of them before those new ones. Uh, of our existing ones before those new ones can be um, produced, marketed and shown to be safe and effective and so on. So 
this antibiotic apocalypse is probably a good name if it causes alarm in people because people need to be alarmed and they need um, to be responsible those who use them need to be responsible about about their use and we need to um, really go with all the initiatives support the initiatives to try and restrict the use of antibiotics um, to where it's necessary and uh, we need to seriously look at the use in animal husbandry and um, really reduce the reduce the amount of antibiotics that are out there in the environment because those are fueling the 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 growth of this serious problem of antibiotic resistance there's a conspiracy theory that superbugs are manufactured to control and maintain populations what's your opinion on that you know it's human nature to believe in conspiracies um, so uh, I wouldn't t- be too concerned about that I don't think it's true um, the eventual result may well be we have this growth of infections which are untreatable so it may may have that result of um, affecting many people I don't think it's going to be on such a scale that we're going to wipe out large portions of the population um, so while I don't think there's a conspiracy I think the reality is that we are breeding these bugs uh, unintentionally and uh, they are spreading and they will cause disease and death unless we take measures to try and control this. Professor, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else in addition that you would like to add? Well, if we've got a a few seconds. Absolutely. We've um, got more than a few seconds. We talked about Odyssean malaria, but we need to be concerned about malaria in our endemic areas in this country. There are there is evidence that we're heading for um, larger numbers of cases in this season, and we need to just ask people to take the necessary uh, precautions if they're traveling, if they're um, visiting the area, to just keep in mind that uh, the risk of malaria does seem to be higher this year for a number of reasons. And that um, they take the anti- necessary anti-mosquito measures. If necessary, consider the use of prophylactic anti-malarials. And just above all else, when they come back, for example, to Johannesburg, they're feeling ill, they have a flu-like illness, that they tell their doctor that they've traveled and they may have been exposed. So if we can just remind people uh, about that, then we'll have fewer severe cases and hopefully fewer deaths unnecessary deaths from malaria Are you talking areas such as the Kruger National Park for example? Well the Kruger Park is one area that's been affected. Fortunately most tourists are well informed about that but there's still the occasional case um, acquired there Uh, Really what's of 
what's producing most of the cases is the local populations in those provinces of Limpopo and Mpumalanga, the border, the, the Kruger Park. And it's, it's uh, people in those areas which are most exposed, most likely to get infected, and um, uh, and that need the uh, the attention of the health authorities to, uh, and they need to cooperate with the health authorities as well. Uh, South Africa's got a good uh, malaria control program, but it does require community participation in allowing, for example, their houses to be sprayed, for people to be aware of what malaria is, what it can do, and to practice the things which will give themselves protection, use of repellents, mosquito coils, uh, not being exposed outdoors after after dark, and so on. Is there a social or an awareness educational drive for your average person out there who's not connected to the net? Well, that is that is part of the uh, malaria control and elimination strategy. Uh, it's quite clear that without uh, community education and, and active participation, um, we're, it's going to take much longer to get rid of the malaria problem than it would otherwise. So that uh, that community health education is part of the, the strategy. But that alone is not enough. We need to take the active scientific measures to control mosquito populations. From the medical side, provide the facilities, the knowledge, and the drugs to effectively diagnose and treat uh, treat malaria. What is your website for those wanting to read up on the latest developments and alerts? So our website is www.nicd.ac.za, and we post uh, alerts and information um, for for the general public. Uh, we've got quite a selection of uh, disease topics uh, for which we have frequently asked questions, for example, and those are accessible on the website as well. Once again, thank you so much for your time, Prof. I know you're a very, very busy man, and I appreciate that you came here to educate, enlighten, and inform us on latest uh, developments. Allow me to share this Cree prophecy. When all the trees have been cut down, when all the animals have been hunted, when, when all the fish has been caught, when all the waters are polluted, when all the air is unsafe to breathe, only then will you discover you cannot eat money. Aspire to inspire before you expire. This is CliffCentral.com.